You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Today we're mixing it up a little and doing our first ever podcast mashup. What the hell is that? I hear you ask. Well, it's when we interview another property podcast host and they interview us. We'll be covering more about the psychology of property buying and in particular the three ways that investors are thinking right now and which is the one that will serve them best. We'll also understand more about timing the market, what signs to look for that will indicate things are on the turn and why confirmation bias looms big in times of uncertainty. And Chris and I will give some more on the ground insights into what's happening right now with lending, listings, real estate agents and buyer activity. So, who is our mystery mashup co-host? Today, we're meeting up with Michael Yardney, property strategist and commentator, author, founder of Metropole, and host of the Michael Yardney podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Welcome, Veronica. Hi, Chris. Thank you, Michael. Great to do this with you because we um, really appreciate your podcast and all your learnings. And uh, I've read your books. I was hoping when I was going through the books to say, oh, I don't agree with that, but I literally couldn't find anything I didn't really agree with, which was um, which was really nice actually because I, th- I think in the property world, a lot of people do have uh, strong views that uh, potentially aren't the right thing. <laughs> yes, I love that. I, I'm always a bit worried when we start a podcast and go, oh, we're all in agreement and so anyone can tune out because like how boring is this one going to be? But uh, the, the fact is, unfortunately, there's very few voices in the property space that aren't sort of trying to get rich quick or trying to, um, you know, chase impossible dreams. And I guess we're all pragmatists when it comes down to it. And I think when it comes to property and certainly in the wake of coronavirus and the impact on the market, being pragmatic is actually probably the strongest thing that we could ever offer our listeners and our, and our clients at the moment. Would you agree with that, Michael? Well, I think the other thing is perspective. So I've been around a little bit longer than you, but I've had a head start. I I started my investment in the 1970s, early 1970s, and I got through a recession in the early 1980s. I actually don't remember much about that. I I got through. And then there was the stock market crash of 87. And I know you're both Sydney-based. I was actually in Sydney with a friend, Michael Warren, at the time. I remember where we were standing when we heard about the stock market crash and he was very heavily into the stock market. We got through that. I got through the recession we had to have in the 1990s and the birds flew and the swine flew and mad cow disease and SARS and uh, the global financial crisis. So I remember being scared at each one of those, but maybe being a little bit scared less each time, Veronica. So I think the other thing that we're bringing is the fact that we've actually survived. Yeah, I I agree with that, Michael, because 
you know, and I think experience is something that uh, you don't really value it until you've got it, I guess. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of, when you're starting out, you think, oh, experience doesn't matter that much. But I think over, as you get more experience, you know how much experience matters because your learnings over time are compounding. And I know just going through the GFC, working and living in London, um, just having that experience and that going through that, I guess, recession allows me as an advisor to look at things a little bit differently to a lot of advisors here that didn't really get to experience that like it was in the UK. So I think experience is is a huge, um, is so important. I think in, in terms of what you do, Veronica, I mean, someone who's, for example, had two years buying property experience, yes, they might be great and had two solid years, but they haven't got the same as someone who's been buying property for 15 years in that market. They just can't possibly have that same knowledge. Look, it's very true, but the, what I often find with people is that you can have 15 years cumulative experience or you can have one year 15 times. You know, there, there's plenty of people who don't seem to learn through the experiences or they don't take time to reflect on what has happened and 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 really be critical in their thinking. And I think that this, you know, I, I don't mind tough times in some regards because it's a great way to sort the, you know, the, was it the the wheat from the chaff or, you know, it's a great way for the, and, and particularly in property and you're seeing in the sales side already, you're going to see people who are really not in it for the long term. They're not really in it for the right reasons. They're going to, they're going to go by the wayside and they're going to go and find another industry that's easier, you know, if there is one. I think what you're talking about is advisors and estate agents here. We're not talking as much about investors, but that's the problem, isn't it, Veronica, that there's so many mixed messages at the moment. And the last good year, we had it well, good nine months, I guess, brought a whole lot of these new so-called experts who'd done mm. a one-weekend course and they're suddenly buyer's agents. You know, Veronica, yeah. we both have a buyer's agency. It actually takes longer to, to get a course to be a nail manicurist than it does to be a buyer's agent nowadays, doesn't it? <laughs> well, there was a bit of a joke around it was easier to become a real estate agent than a barista. Um, mind you, I do like really good coffee, so maybe there's a point in that. But um, <laughs> but I think from the investment point of view as well, the problem is that there's such an appetite amongst the general public in Australia to invest in property and to look to property as being an investment vehicle of choice, right? We're sort of culturally predisposed that way. And so, but we also like to um, think that things can be easy and there's going to be easy riches. And so therefore, when you've got good times, you've got an industry that attracts people, a, a particular type of person, both on a client side and on the advisor side, you know, to think, oh, this is, this is easy. I'm going to go and look for easy riches. It's times like this where we hopefully weed out both types. So the investors who think that they're going to get easy returns, well, you know, now's the reality check, I guess, and the advisors that are preaching that you can get easy returns. So, you know, I guess we're sort of going in a slightly philosophical direction with this one in the in the sense of why do we have these cataclysmic things happen in life? Sometimes I think it's to try to reset, you know, get the reset button happening and maybe that's something that needs to happen in the property market. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's what, what the thing we're really keen to talk about today is from an investor's point of view, how are they thinking right now? Like what are they, you know, what mindset, what's affecting them? Um, and a lot of them is probably taking inaction. So, Michael, what are you thinking that investors are thinking right now? And is that productive or is it going to hamstring them? Well, Chris, 
I love what Veronica said a moment ago because some people do see it as a reset and others are seeing it as the end of the world. Some people are living in the here and now and can't see beyond today and other people have got a long-term time perspective. And depending upon how they think, I'm finding people are thinking in three different ways and only one of them is productive. A number of people are, are, are seeing it's the end of the world and it's terrible and uh, uh, business is going to go broke and my property portfolio is going to drop 30% because the newspaper said so. And Harry Dents come from America and he said it's going to drop 40%. Um, and, and those people are panicking and the fear language they're using means they're not going to make it. But, but actually, maybe I should go back a step. There's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. We're finding that with our clients, with our friends, with our family. But I'd like to share a couple of certainties just for our listeners right at the beginning. We're recording this in April 2020, and I'll give you a certainty. In 12 months' time, we're going to be at April 2021. And I've got another certainty. Somewhere between now and then, there's going to be what I call a survival line. Now, I don't know when it is, six weeks, six months away. I don't think it'll be six months. And once we cross that survival line, desire and greed is going to overcome fear. But at the moment, fear is holding a lot of people back. So to answer your question, Chris, a lot of people are thinking about fear at the moment. And those people who are in that panic mode and not going to make it across the survival line. And that's a pity. And as Veronica said, that's happening in industries as well. Um, some industries are going to have to close down. Some businesses are going to close down. But then the bulk of people I'm coming across, they're sort of hunkering down. They're, they're, they're the preppers, as some people call them. Um, they're buying the pasta and the, and the rice, and they used to buy toilet paper, but now it's a lot of available again. And they're just hunkering down and they're just going to get through and they'll cross the survival line. But what I'm finding in businesses and a lot of our higher and strategic investors, those who've been through the cycles before, they're using this foundation period between now and the survival line to get set to take advantage of the market. So they're getting their finance in place, Chris. They're coming along to you, and I'm sure you're seeing it with your clients too. Some of them are actually getting set with the right structures, the right ideas, the right plan, and they are going to take advantage because once we cross that survival line, there's going to be great opportunities, aren't there? It's interesting you say that because – I think you're right, differentiating between the, say, the more experienced one that's kind of seen it before and then the first-time sort of investor. I agree that the first-time investor is extremely nervous, whether they're a first-time buyer or they're a first-time investor. And for a lot of them, you know, they've only got a little bit and they don't want to waste it. And the last thing they want to do is enter the market and see it fall. So they've got a lot of anxiety around their decision. For them, 100%, they're going nowhere near the market. It's very hard to get first home buyers to buy firstly and secondly in a time like now to go against the grain. The the other investor, I think it's your right, I think you've got the, the high net worth investor who's done it before, they're seeing it as an opportunity but also the investor that wish they did it in the past and the market ran on them and now they're like, oh, actually, this is my chance to get back in. So I think I'm getting those two people that are the experienced one who's potentially looking to buy another one or the one that wished they bought, that left it too late, but now see, well, actually, now I could buy in a better market. We all hear that it's important to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful, but it's really hard to do that, isn't it, Veronica? How are you finding it? It is very hard to do that. 
It's interesting because we do have that very recent history of 2018 is really the time to buy in Sydney anyway, um, and yet most people fail to recognise it until after the event, which is what always happens. You know, we will only know in the rear vision mirror when we pass either the peak or the trough of the market. So some people, as Chris alluded to there, with some investors realised that they missed that opportunity and so they're not going to let this put them off because they see this as, as another opportunity. Others, however, missed it because they fail to take action when there's opportunity and they will again fail to take action now that there's another opportunity. And you can't help some people because they will always revert to that, oh, I'm not going to sit down there, the hunker downers. Hunker downers, is that even a word? So I'm seeing it with my clients, but I've also got to be very careful how I advise my clients here because the simple fact is with investors at the minute, okay, so my owner-occupier clients, I'm saying, you know what, stay the course. If you need to upgrade your home, you need to upgrade your home. If we find the right home for you, then there could be some more favourable conditions in terms of negotiating. But keep your eye on the big picture. We also need to have conversations around if you need to sell, how would you time that? What's the implications in terms of your sale price? And so we're looking at the big picture in terms of their total situation. But a falling market, I say to my upgraders, is a perfect conditions for upgrading. Please do not waste that opportunity if that's the case. But we're also facing potentially no stock. So then this could be a moot point. Um, But the investors and the conversations we're having with investors has to be different right at the minute. Now, we never buy for yield. Never. We always buy for capital growth. I always direct our clients who just want yield or they don't have enough money to actually buy a quality asset. I I actually direct them to a financial planner to, to look at other alternatives for investment. I'm not property or bust, right? But with our investors who can buy or in a position to take advantage of this market, we've also got to be very careful because we don't know really the next six months whether they might have to stare down the, stare down a whole period of time where they've got to completely fund that property without any rental income potentially or certainly with vastly diminished uh, rental income. And when you're looking at Sydney as you know, a, a 3% yield, when we're talking about rent only here, but a 3% yield being a good thing, which is, has been in recent times, A, you've got to focus on capital growth I was why would you buy the asset but B you've got to be able to fund the shortfall so so really property investment in my view is a rich man's game and I hate to say that but but for all those people who are wanting to to you know replace their income well you need a big income to actually invest in property in the first place so this is the time for those people with that big income to have to make sure that their buffers are in place they're buying the right asset it's an opportunity and the pricing of that asset is such that if they do need to actually fund it for six months with no income from it they can and they see it as a good opportunity then that's a very different conversation to an owner occupier who finds the right home to buy and buy now well, I know Chris sets up his clients with financial buffers, and so therefore you're right, Veronica, but it's also having the right finance strategy. So we similarly have a philosophy that our clients have to buy time. They don't just buy property. They've got to be able to buy the time to ride the ups and downs. So our clients who we've set up correctly now, um, even if they're losing a bit of their income, even if they're losing some of their rent um, they, or their own jobs have gone down a bit, they've actually got their offset accounts, their redrawer accounts, the, 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 the money that they've already put in to uh, lines of credit to actually see them through. Because up till now, they've wondered, why are these guys so conservative? Why aren't they allowing me to use all my money? This is why. That's the insurance policy. Yeah, I think with investors, I think I think investors who have currently got property are more worried about um, the people who have bought multiple poor investment properties. Let's say they have that proprietor coming to us and they've gone to see someone and they've got four or five, you know, three, four $400,000 properties and 
They're in areas where potentially their, their tenants can't pay the rent. Um, and they've got four or five properties that are on leases and they're not going to get any rent. These investors are the ones who are going to be really hurt. New investors, though, most of the time, if you've already got it, if you're buying an investment with a tenant, that's going to, and that lease is going to end sometime in the next 12 months. And if it hasn't got a tenant, going to market now, you can be really selective on the type of tenant that you are leasing your property to. Um, for example, a client who was going to sell a property in Bondi, you know, they didn't get a great sale price, so they didn't sell it. So what they did is they put it on the market. But yes, they got $200 a week less than they would have, but they picked a really good tenant that's unlikely to have problems with the rental at the moment. So I think even if you do want to invest from an investor's point of view, new investors can protect themselves a little bit by actually picking a really good tenant rather than existing investors have can't go retrospectively and repick their tenant. So I'm, I think, yes, you need more buffer from a rental point of view, but I don't think... I'm not in agreement with you there, Chris. <laughs> I sorry, agree. I could see you, Veronica. You've got to choose the right property in the right location. The tenant's the least important of all the factors. Cash flow is important. It keeps you in the game, but it's the capital growth that gets you out, Veronica. Yeah, no, but I think what, what Chris is sort of a little bit idealistic in terms of the, how many tenants are actually out there actively looking. The tenants are in the box seat at the minute. I know this personally because one of my properties, unfortunately, that my tenant was uh, looking to buy before this and actually did buy just before this and has now vacated. I've had a, a, a number of, I've had a couple of applications. I had a, a really bad one that I rejected and, I've, and they've come back to me now and I've rejected it a second time. Um, I've had a one that was a really good application that I accepted. And of course, I wasn't the only landlord to accept their application. And somebody's obviously given them, I don't know, a discount or whatever and, and snagged them. My property manager's showing the property and, I, and I've reduced the rent. So, you know. If you reduce the rent a lot, like that's the thing. If you, if you put a you know, a 25% reduction on rent. If you make your rent really cheap right now and you get, then you will increase your applications. If you increase your applications, you're more likely to get better quality tenants. And I personally think that's the best strategy right now. If you've got a really good property, put on a bargain rent and then get a really good applicant. I agree with you, but what all I'm saying to you is that then it comes back to the cash flow position of, of an individual. And it's really, like I bought that property in 2012, right? So that my borrowing is, is pegged to what it was worth then. My borrowing is not pegged to what it's worth today. And so I've got to fund that a much smaller loan that I would have to if I bought that property today. And I can more, I can easily withstand that rental reduction than somebody who just buys a brand new, you know, or buys a new investment today. There's not many people that can go, right, well, I'm happy to take a one and a half percent yield on that because already even at 3% yield, you're significantly out of pocket when you borrow 105% of an investment property. So it, Well, I agree. But the second thing that drives your cash flow is interest rates. And so at the moment, we are getting three-year interest-only investor rates at about 2.8%. So if you can, even if you're getting a small yield right now, your number one expense is interest. And if you can hedge that for a three-year interest-only investor rate at 2.8%, your cash flow, and you can get interest-only, your cash flow cost for the next three years isn't much. And so even if you get a smaller rent, which is fully taxable, it's not going to impact you too much. And I think the thing is people, investors are so concerned about the rental impact over the next six to 12 months, but they're not understanding that even if they don't get any rent for six months, it doesn't mean they shouldn't buy because this isn't going to last forever. No, it's true. It's true. But the thing is that 
because of uncertainty, like there's not many people that are going to stare down the, the barrel of, not many investors are going to stare down the barrel of potentially not renting that place out for six months, taking out a big loan, even at low interest rates, you know, thousands of dollars out of their pocket every month. And they've got the spectre because there's so much press at the moment about prices falling. So then you have to sort of come back to, well, what are you going to pay for that property? How can you work out whether that is a significant enough discount to give you the comfort that you're going to take that hit. And so that's the conversation I'm having with my clients. If we can say, yes, as a package, this looks like a great opportunity because of all of those things. And absolutely, I think, yes, go and buy a property. But it's, you've got to be very careful that it's got all those elements. That's all. So what you're doing, Veronica, is taking a holistic view and you're not selling something, you're selling your services, but you're actually not talking people into getting themselves into trouble. And I think that's what part of our services and yours are, actually protecting people from themselves. But it's interesting to hear three property professionals like us talk about the here and now. And we've really got to remember the long-term big picture because there's that thing in your mind called the reticular activating system that filters out all the news. You know, like in the old days when you used to drive, we don't drive much anymore, if you drove to work, you wouldn't see all the white Toyotas. Uh, but now that I've mentioned it, you see all the white Toyotas. Uh, so you, your mind looks for your particular activating system filters for things that you're you're looking for. So if you're going to look for bad news, you're going to see it. But if you look for good news, there's also a lot of good news out there in the medium to long term, isn't there? I really like your survival line point because I think it's a real ease. And that's what we need in life is we need concepts and frameworks to allow us to think about what's happening and your survival light concept. I don't know if you've come up with that yourself, Michael, but I think it's very good because what it does, it kind of talks about something called peak pessimism. And at the moment, you know, when peak pessimism hits, then we start to get a little bit more optimistic each day and a little, actually, you know what? We actually are going to be able to go outside again. Actually, you know what? We are going to go to work. You know what? You know, world is going to continue again. And I don't think we've hit that yet. But the problem is once you hit that line, things rebound really fast. And this is what happened in 2019. Once Labor didn't win the election, once RBA did three rate cuts and APRA changed the rules, the market uh, took off. And so this is the thing. If you wait for the survival line, you're going to potentially be too late to the party. And so I think we all want to wait to the survival line. We always want to be told that we're going to be safe, everything's going to be okay. But the problem is if you wait too long, you're going to miss it. And I really like that line. Now, it's the same as investing in shares. A lot of people wait for the bottom, but once it hits the bottom, they go, oh, it's actually moved up and they've already missed 15, 20%. So it's a really good concept. Well, we've been through similar situations before where we've recognised that it's just too hard to time the market. I love your annual uh, fool and uh, I'm sorry, what's the name of your special report that I just read again this week? The fool, fool, and, and, the fool or forecaster report. <laughs> yes, yeah, so your fool and forecaster report showed how even the best minds in property don't get it right because every year there's an X factor. And now, currently, there's a whole lot of people coming out saying, I told you so. The property pessimists are out there. No, they never knew about coronavirus. They kicked the can down the road. They said properties were going to drop 40%. 10 years ago and seven years ago and five years ago. Now they're saying, see, I told you. But but the answer is if you listen to them then, you would have missed out all those great opportunities, much the same as if you did this now. So, Chris, 
what we need to do between now and that survival line is get set. So I agree with you, Veronica, you've got to be really careful about committing at the moment, but you've got to be set and you'll be three months ahead, four or five months ahead of those others. So what's getting set? Working out a plan, getting a strategy, educating yourself, but listening to the right people, getting your finance pre-approved. But that's a bit of an issue because if you're not going to go ahead for a little while, maybe it's a bit too early to do that. But, uh, but understanding and uh, knowing what you're going to do when it happens. So, Chris, just on that, getting finance pre-approved, how are the banks treating us at the moment? Are they open for business? Just in the last two weeks, I was having a good chat with my business partner, Ben, around this because... Ben's always dealing a lot with the banks and understanding where the policies are and speaking to the banks. And it's almost going back to like it was in 2018. Bank assessors are either getting told from above them, you know, we want to take risk as a bank, look to approve applications, write exceptions, let's get the loans through. Unfortunately, we've seen in the last two weeks, the banks assessors are looking at things completely different. They're looking at where they're working. Um, they're looking at their bonuses they're looking at their cash flow, the type of property they're buying, um, all this, you know, and they're actually having to do detailed questions around how is COVID affecting you, your employment and, and, your, and your bonuses and everything like that. And so it is completely changing. They're also, there's a big risk right now. For example, um, if you're selling a property, you're not confident that you're going to be able to have enough time to buy another property fast. So if you're, if you're upgrading, so what you want is a long settlement. Now, so you might, so a lot of contracts, I don't know 100% if this is true, Veronica, if you've seen it, but more likely to have, you know, 12 weeks, 90 days, these longer settlement periods on sales contracts. Now, if you're buying that property, what we've started to see in the last week is if you can get that loan approved when you buy. So if you buy on Saturday, we can get that loan approved in the next week and you have your formal loan contract. In the past, that's been enough. But what banks are going to do now is, is two days before you settle, in 90 days' time, they're going to call up your employer and check you're still working. Now, this hasn't happened before because they know that unemployment's happening and the bank's saying, if you haven't got your job at settlement, that loan's going to be you know, avoided. So it's another risk that buyers have to be thinking about. And I think it's just what we're seeing every day, credit policies getting tighter rather than looser, which is exactly what happened in 2018. So pre-approvals right now, if you were pre-approved pre-corona, that pre-approval is invalid because what you, bank policies have changed and you need to really go back to that bank and check, is your situation still valid? Because they'll, they'll assess you under new policy. I've heard that again recently. It was actually my daughter who sold a property to a first home buyer at auction a couple of weeks ago. She sold an investment of hers because she was buying another one. So there are people there who are non-discretionary who actually have to sell because they've bought or bought because they've sold. Uh, and she sold to a first home buyer and it was meant to settle in 30 days and unfortunately got a letter from their solicitor a couple of days ago. Oh, she's uh, had her hours cut back and the bank's not going to forward her loan, um, can she delay settlement? So there's a real issue of that happening at the moment. Even if unemployment goes to 20%, and it won't, 80% of people still are employed. A lot of people are getting this JobKeeper allowance now, but I guess we have to understand what is the individual person's situation, what's their cash flow, how secure is their job, because there's a lot of industries where job security is still pretty strong, isn't there? Yeah, I think there is. And I think the banks know that. That's why it's a kind of case by case. And they're really saying, looking at your job and saying, well, we don't see much uh, problems there. If you're working on contracts, though, this is a 
one that we're having problems with at the moment. A lot of IT, which is some of the highest paying jobs in Australia, um, even a lot of consultants, a lot of compliance, legal, they go in on 12, six-month contracts. And because they've got great experience, they just go get another contract every six to 12 months. In the past, banks would just automatically approve these people. But at the moment, if that contract's likely to end in the next three to six months, the banks can't be confident that you're going to go out and earn that money. And with responsible lending, people who are contractors, they're having problems. So I do think this matters because if you're looking to sell a property, um, what you need is people with a lot of money and a lot of borrowing capacity. At the moment, a lot of people who earn a lot of money, their borrowing capacity isn't as certain because they're not looking at their their bonuses, they're not looking at contractors, et cetera. So you've just got to be conscious that borrowing capacities could in the short term be reduced, um, which means that buyers of your property can't borrow as much. So if you're looking to buy, your competitors can't potentially borrow as much, but you can still because your your job's safe. So you might have a one-up. So it's just a case-by-case basis. And, and, And borrowing capacity has a huge impact on the market because that's really what drives prices together with interest rates I think a lot of the time. I think this leads into a good question for Veronica. Certain sectors of the market are going to suffer more than others. How do you Mm. see that happening? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that, um, you know, for instance, when the share market just tanked a couple of weeks ago and automatically we started seeing people who were in the price bracket, say, above $3 million, they might be more exposed to the share market than people with a lesser budget. It's sort of a bit of a broad generalisation. But so the conversations with those sorts of clients and those people who are selling as well, very different to somebody selling a less expensive property or two uh, or, or buyers are looking at buying a less expensive property. So that's sort of one thing. So exposure to other markets and whether you were planning on, on uh, selling shares in order to fund uh, property purchase, which a lot of people were, and so they suddenly their budgets were were constrained because of that. So that's sort of one segment of the market. Certainly, we are seeing that there's a couple of little pockets of potential vendors that might be under stress. Okay, but and first and foremost are expats who might want to uh, avoid paying more capital gains tax uh, if they sell after June 30. So there's there's a little bit of a late run of people that had left it a bit late you know, figure they had a bit more time than they really do. And they're like, oh, no. And so there will be some pressure from some people who might take a haircut on the price because they've owned that property for a very long time and their tax bill is going to be much, much bigger if they do uh, hold it over that date. So potentially there, there'd be some opportunity. I think to the Airbnb thing's interesting. There's a lot of people that have pursued that short-term letting um, strategy. And I hate the word strategy when you apply it to such nebulous things. So they've got an investment property that may or may not hold its own and stand on its own two legs as a traditional investment property. Um, They may also be under a bit of financial pressure because potentially they might have only bought it in recent years and now they're trying to get that onto the the. Typical, you know, your normal rental market. So that's that's contributing to yields and vacancy rates going up and yields going down. So you might find some of those people are actually considerable financial pressure. Might just decide to bugger it, we're just going to sell it rather than let it be vacant. So there might be some opportunities there. And then look, they're the sort of areas that we deal in. Either uh, you know, good deeds, the business that I have there. You know, we, we focus on the 10K radius of Sydney CBD. So that's Lower North Shore, Eastern Suburbs, uh, Inner West. Outside those areas, when you're dealing with high-density residential apartments, which we don't buy into brand-new buildings and um, 
off the plan. You know, there could be potentially a lot of stress there. There could also be a lot of stress in outer areas, suburban areas where there's been house and land packages. And that's more about the homogenous nature of the owners. And also there's everybody's on the similar timeline. Whereas if you're in more established areas and in any given street and any given block of apartments that has been established for some time, every single person's financial situation is completely and utterly different. And there's no sort of single um, factor that is going to tip them all onto the market at one time. And so, yeah, and that's another reason for, for looking to buy in these areas because they're much more robust when these sorts of things go, go down. What you've said reminds me of the conversation we had right at the beginning of this podcast, how our philosophies are very similar. So I couldn't have said it better. So I think A-grade homes and investment-grade properties, and that's not investment stock, but investment-grade, are not going to fall as much. Clearly, the upper end of the market's going to fall. It always does when the stock market crashes. But but uh, And the outer suburbs are going to suffer more as well because a lot of people are going to have fewer hours and they can't work remotely. They can't uh, distance themselves. But there's lots of suburbs where people have got multiple streams of income, like, like the inner eastern suburbs uh, the, that you're talking about in Sydney and in the, the better suburbs of our other capital cities, where people have got multiple streams of income. They've got shares, they've got property portfolio, they've got wages, they get dividends. And so they're still going to be okay. And there are still going to be some discretionary sellers and buyers who move out of the market, but there'll always be those people who have to still sell, still transact because of death, divorce, the uh, having babies, moving jobs. And I heard something very clever that you said on one of your previous podcasts, Veronica, that the property market closes down every year for about four weeks at Christmas time. Uh, solicitors go on holidays, banks sort of close down, estate agents go away. And when we come back after a close down, the property market doesn't crash. What'll be a bit different this time round is lack of confidence. So we really got to see how long all this goes on. The longer it goes on, the, the harder it'll be to regain confidence. But there are precedents for this when the market closes down for a while. Of course there are. I mean, if you even look back into... Uh Eliza Rowan, we interviewed her recently and she did this great article where it really did look back. Um, it sort of went back to the 1980s, I think, um, looking at economic crashes, if you like, so the stock market crash and the various other economic crashes and whether or not the property market responded in the same way. And it's not uniform in the way the property market actually responds. And that's fundamentally because it's a consumption item, you know, that we all need to live in property. At some point, life gets in the way and we go, oh, bugger it, we're just going to get on with it. And I think that's what we saw happen at the beginning of 2019. After, you know, 18 months of prices falling, people came back after Christmas in 2019 basically saying, you know what, even if it's not the bottom, I don't care, I'm actually ready to get on with my life. And I, and I was really looking at thinking, well, there's pretty much, you know, when things kicked off again after the election, it was like, two years of pent-up demand and you could even argue there was two years before that because a lot of owner-occupiers had evacuated the market while the investors were just so dominant. And so you could argue there's four years of owner-occupier demand that had built up and that's why we shot out of the gate straight after the um, surprise election outcome and and it was owner-occupier driven too, not investor driven. And I think that's really important because that's about people getting on with their lives and needing homes. And so I, I see that at some point 
when, how long, how it, you know, the, the shape of the curve, all that sort of stuff. You can argue about V-shape, U-shape, whatever. You can argue it's going to be long and skinny or short and sharp. You can argue that to the cows come home. Fundamentally, the market will start getting active again at some point. And I just think that everyone has to remember this, this too will end. That's the survival line I was talking about, Veronica, where basically greed or or desire is going to overtake the fear. So let's remember the fundamentals. 70% of properties, a bit less than that, are owned by owner-occupiers, and they're not going to give up their homes at the moment. They're not going to sell desperately. They'd rather eat dog food uh, than sell up their homes. But the answer is the banks aren't asking them to. The banks are not creating it. There's no forced sales at the moment, and there won't be forced sales from investors either because of the bank holidays as well. Yeah, you're not going to get out of paying your mortgage, but they're going to be able to delay it. So I can't see a crash occurring like some of the doomsayers are suggesting because we're underpinned by that large percentage of owner-occupiers. Mortgages sales aren't going to occur because investors are, are not going to get themselves into as much trouble. Now, there's no doubt that some investors have overcommitted. But we, we know that CoreLogic says there's a $7 trillion worth of properties values in residential real estate in Australia. And Overall, there's about a 28% loan-to-value ratio because a lot of people don't even have debt against their home and a lot of people have actually paid down their mortgages faster than they've needed to. So there is a segment of the market that's overcommitted, but overall the fundamentals are strong with owner-occupiers, usually in good financial condition. We've got a rising population that probably won't rise as much in the next year or two because immigration is going to slow down. We didn't come into this with an economic crisis. Yeah, our economy wasn't working as strongly as we would have liked, but this was more a health issue creating an economic issue rather than the other way around. And our banking system is very sound. And fortunately, compared to other countries, we actually came into this, our, our government came to this with a, a, a almost a budget surplus on the basis that they can now afford to borrow it. Well, the government's borrowing at a quarter percent to, to fund all this. Um, that means that we're probably going to have to pay some more taxes down the road. But I can see that we're going to get through this, guys. Yeah, I think you're right. The government's um, – we're very fortunate the government has – as a, in relation to a lot of the other development countries around the world, we have got very low government debt. And so the government can go on this binge and borrow a lot of money and still – you know, really at the end of it, we won't have a huge kind of credit card bill, which a lot of countries around the world have got this bigger debt and even and rates are very low so they can afford it. So I think that's very good. And I think it's interesting when we talk about what's actually underpinning the property market. And a lot of it is migration and a lot of it is population growth. And yes, we might get this 12 to two years where, 12 months, two years where there's not as many university students, there's not as much tourism you know, et cetera. But the reality is that's one of the tools the government will actually increase to get us out of this recession. They'll actually potentially open our borders more and they'll actually try to encourage more migration because that's one of our tools. So I think long-term, I don't think the migration thing's going to change. We may get a couple of years slowing down, but after that, it'll go back to business as usual and we'll try to encourage people from all around the world that Australia is a place to live. Well, there's a queue of people wanting to come here and they're going to see us as a safe haven because life is going to be different moving forward from this. When my parents came, I came here at the age of three in 1956. They used to have to pay people to come to Australia. Remember, pounds of pom, they made, they, get, they paid you to come. Now there's actually a, a, a queue of people wanting to come in and we're, we can be very selective. So you're right, Chris, that's a way of... Um, 
helping uh, grease the wheels of industry and get things going again. But in the short term, uh, there's going to be a rising unemployment. And, and, and so I can see that we're not going to need to bring as many people in in the short term to fill up the jobs that uh, maybe Australians are now going to not be as selective in the jobs that they're taking. They're going to take the jobs that are available. Well, it'd be interesting too, just, I just think on the globalisation side of things, I think that we will just as human beings, we're going to have to look at the way we have been doing things in the past and the risks that have been associated with that. So we've all gone globalisation and that's contributed to our, our wages not rising as well. So I think that we're going to have to, you know, the manufacturing sector is going to be looking at things differently. We're going to be looking at quite a lot of, you know, travel is going to be different. There's going to be ways in which we actually look to ourselves to pull ourselves out of this as well, rather than necessarily just looking to bring people into this country. Um, so I, I'm quite excited just to see, I guess, what comes of the wash out of this. And, and I guess it comes back to that idea about survivors, you know, those hunkering down versus those looking to the future versus those thinking that, that things are never going to be the same again, so life's going to be horrible. So one thing is for sure, life will go on and we will survive whether we've got, you know, everything we entered into it with or not, we still will be alive at the end of it and kicking and screaming and doing whatever we do. So, and that just brings it back to property being such a fundamental part of our lives. And so, yes, if prices all fall, then they all fall. Or if, um, you know, there's opportunities in, in that for some people and it's all about your mindset as well. And definitely the upgraders, and it's what I'm always banging on to people about when when the markets do fall, go, take advantage. You are going to be able to get more than what you could possibly get in a rising market, even though you feel more confident to trade in a rising market. So there's this sort of mindsets that I think a lot of people have to start looking at, not just buying property, but everything that we do. And if we do be, if we get a bit more creative about things, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite hopeful of, for us as a society. <laughs> I've just been reading a lot of articles, which, you know, a lot of investment professionals have been writing around the changes that a uh, big crisis, whether it's the depression, global financial crisis, 1987 stock market crash, they all have an impact on consumer behaviour. And how, after those crashes, we all re- look at things a bit different. We val- you know, check our expenses, how we're spending money, are we getting value from them? And we always reset, which is what we spoke about before. But there is going to be changes to consumer behaviour. And I, I, we don't know yet what they're going to be, because, you know, subconsciously and they're going to have, you know, maybe we, you know, go on holidays more. Maybe we, you know, spend more money on our homes. And that's the thing I'm, I'm a bit, you know, unsure about. But, you know, having to spend six months in your home, let's call it, do you change your attitude on how much a home means to you and how much important space, um, et cetera? And what this potentially could do is, you know, really, you know, encourage people to potentially say, you know what, I really do want to have a place of my own or I really need more space. And so what you're potentially going to get is more owner-occupier demand um, and more people pushing and having that as a goal, which potentially could create, you know, longer, even more people. So when you say 70% of people owning home, people even more could go down that direction. So it's just going to be interesting what happens to the property market in terms of consumer demand changing. I think people are going to want different sort of homes because I think one of the things that's come out of this is we are, we are all three of us are working remotely at the moment as are our staff, as are our businesses. And up till now, bosses 
probably were a little bit nervous, a bit scared. I've got 60 staff and they're all working at home now. In the past, I used to only allow a few because, to be blunt, I wasn't convinced that if I let the others work from home that they'd be as productive or as efficient. So I think now we've actually realised maybe we don't need as much office space. Maybe we don't need uh, uh, to, to, to work the same way. Having said that, People are also going to realise a studio apartment doesn't work for me anymore. I need a, a study nook. I need a separate bedroom. I need a, a, an area to, so that I can lock the door and the kids aren't going to uh, annoy me as much. So I can see that some people are going to want to have that front or backyard and others are going to just make sure that they've got a bit more space. So I think it could well change um, the way we live, Chris, uh, because – more of us are going to work from home in the future, even if the COVID, even when COVID goes away. I totally agree. And what I think is going to be very interesting, I think some people are going to come out of, out of the gates like a greyhound at the at the track, you know, at the end of this going, that's it, I'm in the wrong home and I need to get out of there and quick smart. I think it, I, I'm calling it now the end of the tiny house movement. <laughs> I think, yes, yeah. that's it. Like, hey, you're the first. It's on this show. On this show, I'm <laughs> calling it. it. Yep. Well, I mean, what they're saying as well is that a lot of the reasons why we haven't had stopped the spread, and it's too early to say these sort of things, but, um, you know, one of the benefits of Australia versus, say, places like Italy that are in very high-density environments and China. India. Um, well, in India and they're things like that. It's saying it's impossible in India. So if, for example, you're living in an apartment right now and you are ridiculously fearful around leaving that apartment um, your attitudes about living in the apartment are going to change, whether you're renting or you own. Um, just that fear of this virus. Now, have I ever woken up and felt that I could die from a virus before? No. Have I thought like that over the last month? Well, yeah. Like, I, you know, I'm someone who's more susceptible with really bad asthma. So I think, you know, things like that will change as well. So it's, it's we just don't know how much fear of something will drive our behaviour in the future. Um, and maybe our attitude towards debt potentially if you're going to lose your job, what are you most fearful on right now is paying the mortgage, paying the credit card bills, paying the car lease. So that fear out of this will potentially mean that you won't buy that new car. It might mean that you might not want to upgrade your home because of debt. It might mean you might cut your credit card spending because that that's what was really keeping you up at night. So there's all these things that are going to come, which we just don't know yet, but there are going to be big changes to consumer behaviour. Interestingly, I was speaking to Simon Kirstenmacher, who's a demographer, and he pointed out to me that the density in Sydney CBD of apartments is as high as it is in Wuhan when you work out how many people per square kilometre. I didn't realise that. So maybe people aren't going to live in those high-rise Legoland towers as much either. Well, Harry Triggerboss not going to be happy about that. No, the it's interesting though because even talking to some employers about how their their teams are functioning working remotely and and introverts uh, are enjoying it. And I, look, I don't want to say I mean I'm obviously an extrovert and I'm actually enjoying it, believe it or not. But but. A lot of introverts um, are like, yeah, bring it on. I don't get bothered all day long. I can just quietly do my thing. Some extroverts are saying, well, I, I would crave the social connection. I'm really missing the social connection actually going into the office. And and it's a bit of a mix. One of my team is, is definitely an introvert and she went into the office the other day and even though there was no one else there, she just loved the idea of being, being in the office. I think that it's going to change. There'll be more, maybe more choice. You talk about, you know, employers being more trusting of their team actually getting the job done at home but I think some can choose to actually go into an office and others may choose not to 
And so there'll be different structures around all of that. So the, the distance from the CBD will become less of an issue for some people. Uh, obviously, office spaces. So will they become residential? What will they, How will they be repurposed, for instance? And that's that's something that could potentially um, – and that was happening actually in Sydney for some, for a period of time there. Office buildings were being uh, rezoned as, and, and redeveloped as residential. So, yes, I think there'll be a bit of a movement. I mean, commercial real estate at the moment, you know, oh, that that's sort of looking to be quite a vulnerable <laughs> segment of the property market. Um, retail, retail, you know. So um, there's a lot of changes to be had there as well. So these are buildings and will those buildings become residential? Will that change opportunities? Who knows how, how it will be. Re- we need to get an urban planner on, see what their vision is on this. So, Michael, um, you do a lot of your work um, across the country because, you know, you've got lots of buyers, agents and property management, et cetera. But I know you know the Melbourne market um, really well. If, if I kind of targeted on the Melbourne market, what are some of the types of properties that you think really stand the test of time in Melbourne? Um, and what are some of the, you know, I guess the options that you would consider investors to look at down there? Because those learnings can be, you know, replicated in Brisbane and Sydney and things like that. But if you just think about the Melbourne market, what are some of the types of things that you think just really do really well long term? I'll answer that, but I'll correct you if I may, please, Chris, because no, they don't translate to Brisbane and Sydney. We have offices in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, and I don't like the look of Brisbane houses. I remember a couple of years ago, Pam and I were driving down and we said, isn't that ugly? Why have they got all that space underneath the house? Maybe that's where they store their bananas, but the locals didn't like that joke. But that's what they live in. And if you come to Melbourne, we live in different sort of accommodation and uh, it's different. But in Melbourne, our statistics go back 40 years and it's shown that over the last 40 years, on average, houses have performed seven point, uh, grown on average 7.9% and apartments 7.4% per annum on average, which is leads some people to say, well, you know, properties double every 10 years. No, they don't. Half of them didn't and half of them did. But having said that, In general, apartments haven't done as well in Melbourne in the last decade because of the oversupply of new stock. So we like properties in the inner and middle ring suburbs of Melbourne, close to transport, close to um, uh, amenities, close to lifestyle. We like investing in the gentrifying suburbs. And while apartments definitely have a role, we like uh, villa units, which is something that was very much, if you can't afford a house, we, we like investing in villa units, which was something that was built in the 60s and 70s for retirees. They pulled down the old mansions and built single-storey uh, dwellings that were detached, that had a small front yard, had a bigger backyard, and they're now very much uh, liked by uh young families, uh, because you haven't got somebody above you, behind you, and they have the land component, and so they perform like houses, which in general perform better than apartments, or townhouses. The last census showed that there was an increase of 11% increase in people living in townhouses. So in Melbourne, we call them townhouses. In other states, they're sometimes called duplexes, where there's modern accommodation on big accommodation on a compact block. You pull down an old house and build two townhouses, both facing the streets, no common area. And that's very much like by owner-occupiers. So like Veronica, we choose properties that have got strong owner-occupier appeal. Not that we want to sell them, but we want other people to buy properties similar to them 
to them around us to push up the value of the property. So how we decide where to invest really depends upon people's budget. So if you've only got uh, $600,000, dollars well, you know, so you're 10 years too late in Sydney, you're probably five years too late in Melbourne, so we'll suggest people buy a house for that in Brisbane. Um, but, but if they can afford $750,000, dollars we can get a good villa unit. If you can spend over a million dollars, we can get a townhouse. And for those clients who've got more than that, we actually – do the townhouse developments for them. That's where my background was many, many years ago. And still, we're probably involved in about 55 developments for clients. We don't get involved. It's not their money. We project manage. So not our money. We manage it for the clients. We pull down an old house, build two townhouses, and they keep them as a long-term investment. And they're great investments because they make the developer margin. Let's, let's talk about that one because we haven't spoken about too much about developments on the, our podcast. I mean, um, you know, we have had a little bit of a conversation. I, I think it's a very, you know, in terms of the things that can go wrong on that, I think if you, like any investing, if you understand what can go wrong, um, really, and you think about all the risks and you do things to mitigate those risks, then you think about what the return is. Most people do it the other way around. They go, what can I potentially make? And then they try to put their head in the sand with the risks. So if you could just talk about things where all that experience with development, where it goes wrong, um, because I think that's what's most important here for people thinking about it. Good point, because I ask clients, where do you think the big risk is? And they talk about interest rates or the finance or or, or the, the town planning not coming through. And I say, no, the biggest risk is you. How many developments have you done before? None. Um, so I say, if, if you ask me, is doing a townhouse development, a medium density development, two, three, four, risky? No, because I've been involved in hundreds. But if you ask Michael, um, is building a high rise apartment tower risky? To me, it is because I've never done it before. So really, the risk lies with the investor and and the desire to be like the big boys and get involved in development when they really don't know much about it. So there's an element of what the client knows, but you can mitigate that risk by having the right people around you, just like you do when you have a buyer's agent uh, level the playing field, not getting involved in development. So there's market risk. So if you got involved in a development and it came out now, all of a sudden you started two years ago and all of a sudden the market's changed and moved against you and you couldn't find a tenant or you couldn't refinance, that's a problem. But may I say that we always get our clients to have sufficient finance to hold on to it in the long term. Development is not a way to make money or a living. Everyone, all that, many of the people who come to us want to do development because it's trendy, it's sexy, and they, they want to do it as a living. No. To me, property development is a way of adding value and buying your assets at wholesale because there's not enough margin for the middleman, which our clients are, when they use us as project managers and use outside builders. There's not enough margin for them to to buy, renovate and sell or buy, develop and sell. And if they just do a two-townhouse development, the bank see it as residential, so they shouldn't do it big. They can they buy an old house close to use-by date. That's the first step, in a good suburb. And there's nothing wrong with that. Buying the worst house on the best streets is a great uh, investment strategy anyway. Then over the first year, we get development approval from them through the council for something that's going to be appropriate for the target market for that area. So you've got to then build the right product for the area. Again, that's a risk if you don't know what you're doing there. And then you've got to own it in the right ownership structures and get the right finance up front. So you've got to get all the right people to up front to do it right. Then at the end of 12 months, 
We pull down the house, we get a fixed time, fixed price contract from an outside builder who will actually build it. And at the end, we project manage it, and at the end, they've got two great townhouses. But if all of a sudden, and there are clients like ours, there was one who'd signed a contract three weeks ago, and he's a Qantas pilot. The development's on hold. Doesn't matter. He's got an old house in a good street with a tenant in it. It hasn't been pulled down. We haven't got rid of the tenant. So you've got to have a little couple of stops along the way. But one way out is, okay, I mean, he's not going to have to, but if he got stuck, he could sell it. He bought it two years ago. He'll do okay. Or at the end of the project, if the finance doesn't work or the world isn't right for you, you could sell one, you could sell both, but you shouldn't do it for that purpose. You should do it to manufacture capital growth. So the risks are finance risks, market risks, development risks. We have never not got a two-unit development through council. Now, that's a double negative. Um, We always get them because we do the feasibilities and work out what we can do in advance. Bryce, my son, who's been working with us and our director of that division for eight years, has been involved in hundreds of these. And previously, my business partner, Gavin Taylor, who's an architect by degree, he's recently retired, he was running that division. So you need to get in knowing what you're ending up doing and understanding the risks. And then there are building cost risks, there are market risks, there's interest rate risks, because one of the biggest costs over the two-year development process is interest costs. Because for the first year, you've got an old house, and there actually isn't much income coming in, because you don't want a nice house, because you're going to pull it down. And then for the second year, there's no income coming in while you've got all the expenses going out. So you've got to do proper feasibilities up front, realistic ones. So a big mistake people make is just doing a bit of sums on the back of a piece of paper on a napkin, as they say, and thinking they know what they're doing or fiddling the figures to make it work because you want to get involved in it. No, that's wrong. So there's lots more risks. And maybe we could do a whole podcast on that. But does that give you some overview, Chris? I really like two things. You said, one, you're building to keep. Um, You're not building to sell. Because I think you're missing a lot of the benefit. If you're building a great development and it's a great capital growth property, then you know, you're know you trying to time a buy and a sell and the cost to build. Is there really that much money to be made in it after capital gains tax and et cetera? No. If you potentially no. build to hold. Um, and then the second part that I think you, it's really smart, um, yes, getting a team around you is a no-brainer, which most people don't do, but you should do, which I think. But the second thing you said um, was really about picking the right type of property to match the market, the target market. Um, and I think if you're thinking about that on two levels, not from a rental point of view, but from a capital growth point of view, if you can build a really solid development that will stand the test of capital growth long-term, isn't just a cheap and cheerful development, in a great area, in a great location, um, that they're not going to build lots and lots and lots more of them, then potentially something you should really consider. But I think a lot of people go the other way. Oh, I can buy a cheap block of land in the outer skirts. I can build a cheap product on it. I can do six of them and then try to make this big profit and it just doesn't work from my view. So we like inner or middle ring suburbs, really middle ring now because they're the areas that are gentrifying. The inner suburbs of our capital cities gentrified last cycle. And we like those gentrifying areas with good schools. And our competition for those old houses tends to be uh, other developers. They're out of market a bit now. But actually a lot of home buyers who want to pull down the old house and build their second or third home there. So we don't like a suburb, as you correctly say, where there's lots of competition. We like a street where there's a mixture of 
houses and owner occupiers, not a lot of rental accommodation, but we keep them to rent. And there's a huge demand for those for rental properties because most developers do them to sell. So people want to, people rent today, Chris, not because they can't afford to buy, but they do it for lifestyle choices. It's interesting though, you know, I've come across over the years, many, many would-be investors or investors that feel like they graduate to development. They feel like, you know, that they've they've earned their stripes in buying all these other stuff and then it's like, now I, I want to re- become the developer. And it is for them, it's about income replacement, which basically means that they need to actually sell these things. And my alarm bells go off. And because I pretty much don't have any of those people as clients because they don't like my message, so therefore they won't come on board with us. But it's sort of interesting what you're talking about there is that you, exactly what Chris says that is brought to light there is about the buyer to the buyer to develop to hold um, you know that flies in the face because that's that long-term thinking that you need in order to do it versus a short-termism that usually is what leads people to think that development is their their holy grail is going to basically uh, be the thing that makes them rich and but I also I also think to myself I think oh but it is a lot of effort to end up with a property you know what I mean like it, it and I I have renovated property I've done three and I've got another one of my houses at some point I will renovate and not not redevelop it but but renovate and turn into a substantially bigger home so I know the value of that myself I know the value in terms of being able to add value without having to or add to your portfolio without actually increasing your stamp duty or your land tax uh, liability and there's, so there's definite benefits in actually adding value to to houses that you already own but it is for some for a lot of people they're too busy in their day-to-day job to go through all of that now I, I get that you outsource that but like I, it, it does amaze me that some people have an appetite for it. Well, some people want to do it, Veronica, because they see it's sexy. They're wanting to replace their day job because they've watched The Block or they've watched those other TV shows. That's reality TV. We know reality TV isn't true. And in fact, they didn't make money out of The Block. It didn't work. They did. The TV producers did because the aim of that was to actually make money out of the TV show and sponsorship, not out of the development. But yes, the most common reason young people come to us for development and like you, we don't take them on as clients because they want to buy, sell, flip. doesn't work. On the other hand, we have a lot of time-poor professionals who actually like the concept of manufacturing capital growth. And I see in the next little while where there may not be as much capital growth because inflation's low, because interest rates are low, because wages growth is low. This is a way of adding capital growth, manufacturing capital growth, forcing capital growth. But yes, it's not easy and you have to understand all the risks and you've got to get a good team around you and you have to have a long-term perspective and you need much, much deeper pockets than you think you do because the bank's appetite for risk is much lower, as Chris would recognise, and you actually have to uh, be able to to fund it. Uh, And so detailed feasibilities and detailed finance strategy at the beginning is critical. Well, it comes back to that property investment is an elite sport. It really does come back to that, you know, that that trying to do it to replace your income is just is fraught with danger and this is just yet another example of that and rightly or wrongly rightly or wrongly I mean I don't really want to get into sort of a, a you know equality or egalitarian uh, argument here but it is the fact that that people who can't afford to lose often get in to these sort of uh, projects and it, it really ha- you have to be able to fund it like you said you've got to have the money in the first place if you come in the first place to fund it I think the other thing you do which is really smart 
here, Michael, and I, I think it's when you said that conscious pilot, that was, I was like, yeah, tick, because that for me, one of the big things you can do to manage your risk factor. What you said there is that he bought that property um, and it wasn't a knockdown house. It can still rent and it's still a good investment in the area, even if you don't do the development. And for me, that's one of the best things you can do. If you go, I'm going to buy this derelict house that it needs to knock down, I can't get a tenant, and then you your situation changes and you can't develop it, then you've got to try to sell it to another developer. Now, if developers leave the market, which they potentially do at times, which they did in maybe 2019 and 2018, um, you can only sell it to – there's no, no buyers. But if you buy a property where it does suit home buyers and your life changes and you have to sell it like that Qantas pipe – well, that's fine. You'll, you'll sell it to another developer. If they're not there, you'll sell it to a home buyer. So I think that's another big key risk factor. But, Michael, if you were, say, not that, uh, I guess, keen to go down that route, if you were going to buy and you've got a budget, you know, roughly a million dollars in Melbourne, like what's some of the things that you really like in Melbourne in terms of suburbs? Because I think it's interesting for clients to picture that. What's some of the areas that you would look at? Okay, so... For a million dollars, you're now out of the apartment range. And so what we actually tend to do is we talked about villa units before. And so you can buy in some of the better Bayside villa units, including Brighton, the suburb where I'm living in. They didn't build many villa units, uh, but, but you buy an old one. So these were often lived in by older people who have now gone to a nursing home or unfortunately some have died. And so they're old and they're run down and they got the brown skirtings and the old kitchens and those orange mosaic tiles. And what you do is you pull it pull out the kitchens and bathroom and you put new carpets and curtains and split system air conditionings, you pull up the carpet and polish the floorboards and all of a sudden you've actually got a nice dwelling in, in, in a good suburb and they come to, you can pay seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars for those plus 60, 70 renovation and all of a sudden you've manufactured some capital growth, you've got some depreciation allowances and you've got a wide range of tenants liking them. Similarly, around the million dollars you can get in the southeastern suburbs or in some of the inner northern and western suburbs, townhouses, um, so rather than develop them, you can buy them. And there's actually nothing wrong with buying new ones that are built for owner-occupiers. So we don't buy new or off the plan like the same philosophy as Veronica. We don't buy in big blocks. But at the moment, there are some developers who were hoping to sell to owner-occupiers and owner-occupiers are out of the market now. And all of a sudden, you can buy something cheaper than you could a little while ago. And since it's new, you're getting depreciation allowance. You're going to find good tenants. So townhouses or villa units with renovation potential for that sort of price range in Melbourne. In Sydney, um, that, that you'd only be getting a, a two-bedroom apartment. And in, in uh, Brisbane, you, you'd be buying almost a whole suburb. <laughs> Not really true, but you'd be buying the best house in the suburb. Uh, I agree with the Bayside Villa units. I think, um, you know, the reality is the land value in those areas. And when you buy a villa, you buy a big portion of land um, because there's six a villa units on quite a big block, whereas... And that's the thing where while it's, it's higher density, it's not that high density, you know, really, you know. And in those areas, there's already a cap on how high you can build. So you're not going to see all these apartments go up. So I actually think they're really good. But my only worry with those is investments, and I could be proven wrong here, which is which is fine, um, is they it's very hard to convert a two-bedroom villa to a three-bedroom villa. And I just, how do you get the, the family market? Why would you? 
I guess the family market potentially, you know, that's one of the strongest demographics, I think. Do you need it or do you think they're good investments on their own? Okay. So firstly, they're irreplaceable. That's one of the things I like. They have a high land to asset ratio, which is one of our underpinning strategies. And today you couldn't replace them. So if you somebody bought the whole complex of five or six villa units, um, they'd pull them down and build an apartment block or something like that. So you're basically buying something that's irreplaceable, which, which is nice. But the answer is no, you can't go higher. You can't build at the back. You can't make them bigger because the owner's cooperation won't allow you and town planning won't allow you. Just like if you bought an apartment, you could do it up, but you couldn't change a two-bedroom apartment to a three-bedroom. The owner's corporation wouldn't allow you either. So you're right. You've got to target an appropriate market for that area. So it won't be a family, but interestingly, it'll be a beginning family. Now, a couple of years ago, my daughter bought one in East Melbourne, um, and, and I remember I went there, and she didn't like the idea. She thought, oh, this is old person stuff. And when we went there, she actually saw this was a complex of villa units, and outside one was a RAV4 car, and she said, that's not an old person's car, it's a young person's car. And then we looked outside another of the villa units, and they had their pram or pusher there, and she said, hey, that's a young family as well. So the people who had moved into that complex replacing the older retirees were young beginning families, starter families who couldn't afford a home on their own with a big front and backyard. So there is families there, but it's not established families with three kids. You're right, Chris. I really, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think you're right. Like it's the establishing family, maybe one child or maybe even potentially two child till they really have to get out. It's still got really strong for downsizers because it's single level, you know, um, having got lots of stairs and it's near the beach and et cetera. So, you know, you're right. There are other demographics and it's just about really making sure you target that, you know, making you buying in a villa unit that really families want to live in. So a lot of villa units are on busy roads. So you wouldn't, you know, potentially want to buy those villa units, you know. So you do, there's other things you need on top of just buying villa units, which I'm sure your team do. It's just really important to to really know your target market and make sure that they're kind of that affluent sort of area. It's so funny hearing this conversation about villa units because it's such a Melbourne thing. And um, I, I think there are a lot of similarities in the Sydney and Melbourne property markets per se in terms of the 10K radius, in terms of, you know, scarcity, you love period homes, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously they're very expensive and they're beyond uh, the budget of what we're talking about here. But the villa units things, there's so few of them in Sydney and, and not many of them are in that sort of inner or middle ring. Um, they tend to be... At, not 100% outside, but they tend to be a bit further out as well. So uh, it is so funny uh, hearing this conversation. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so our buyers team in Sydney, our buyers team in Sydney, Veronica, do the same as you. So we'd, at that price bracket, be buying an apartment, but we'd be looking for something with a twist. So it wouldn't be one in a big complex. It would be one, again, with a high Perceived land to asset ratio because if you've got 10 apartments there, you've got a tenth of the block of land in Coogee, in Bondi, in Clovelly, in, in the inner north, uh, western suburbs. They're, they're great locations, but not on the main road. So I like the fact that there's a lot of these developments on the main road which have, up until recently, enlivened, revived those strip shopping centres. They're dead at the moment, but they'll come back. So I want to be close to them, but not right close to them. I want yeah. to be close <laughs> to the trains, but not too close to them. So public transport is very important in Melbourne. 
And uh, in Melbourne, we have trams. So trams are, are pretty important. Our bus services are very poor. Trains are pretty important as well. Um, and much the same in Sydney as well. And uh, Brisbane, it's very different again. We haven't bought an apartment in Brisbane for years and years. I'm uh, pleased to hear that. <laughs> not even established ones because that's not how people live. So it's got to be what's appropriate. That's what investors are buying. That's investment stock, not investment grade. Um, and, and so they've uh, suffered, uh, people who've invested in apartments in Brisbane have suffered terribly. But buying a house, and in Brisbane it's much easier, Chris, to do what you said. You can actually add, add a bedroom, you can change it around because a lot of the homes there were built very differently to Melbourne and Sydney. They're built out of uh, weatherboard out of, uh, and they've got space underneath that sometimes you can, if the height is right, you can do things. And the other thing with Brisbane, and we do developments in Brisbane, is a lot of the box blocks of land are already pre-subdivided. There, it was a weird way that they did things. So each count, each state has different regulations. And so a lot of the blocks are actually already, they've got one house on two separate blocks of land that are 410-ish square metres each, or you, the land is big enough to subdivide anyway by right. And then all of a sudden you can actually subdivide and have two separate blocks of land and build two separate homes as opposed to townhouses, which usually have got some adjoining wall. Very much an active an active strategy, though, for your investors, isn't it? Even buying a house in Brisbane, if you're buying a, a weatherboard home, you know, it's, it's not your set and forget investor that wants to buy a property like that, is it? Well, we have a whole range of clients like you do, Veronica. So we have, at the moment, two people who have actually asked us to buy blocks of apartments. They've given us five one five one six million dollars. Interestingly, one's a high-end restaurateur in Sydney, and when I spoke to him um, only a week or two ago, he told me he had laid off 200 staff, and I thought, oh, well, that's it. He's briefed off for a while. He said, no, isn't this a great time for me to get into the market because everyone else is out of it? So, yes, please buy me that block of apartments, which we've found one off market for him. So there's people at that level. And, and then there's people who got one and a half, two, three million dollars that we do the developments for. But the majority of our clients are somewhere between 700 and thousand dollars and maybe 1.2 million dollars and we can't we don't help everybody just like you don't i know you've got your patch so we can't be an expert at everything so if people want to invest in regional towns or other areas i don't believe it works so i'm not looking for more clients to uh, just help them do whatever they want if they're not going to fit in with the strategy that has worked for me that's known proven and trusted we're just not going to take them on no it's 100 percent aligned to exactly what we all you know i think the brisbane the Melbourne, the Sydney, it's 100%. And that's that's comes from you know, your, your years of experience and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And we didn't go there today, but there's so many mistakes that you would have seen over the years. And that's why you do, that's why you invest the way you do now. It's because you've seen what doesn't work. You know, the apartments in Brisbane. I've made them, Chris. I often say that with myself. It's like if I if I hadn't made these mistakes myself, I wouldn't truly understand the pain of it and I wouldn't truly be able to see the warning signs and actually say to my clients, you know what, I can save you, I could point you in the right direction and guide you so that you don't make the mistakes I've made. Well, that's what people are paying us for in these uncertain times, to give them some clarity, to give them some direction, to give them better results. And uh, it's a form of insurance, isn't it? Paying for services of a financial planner, a good mortgage strategist, a good buyer's agent. Yeah, while you pay them, Michael, um, I wouldn't recommend people to to make the mistakes, to learn the 
the learning. So, um, you know, go hopefully speak to people that you have got that experience that avoids you to make the mistakes. But, um, I mean, it's been an amazing podcast with you, Michael. We should definitely look to do another one in the future. So really appreciate your time and, um, yeah, and, and having us on. Well, maybe we should finish off with some good news because we are in unprecedented times. We are in scary times. And I know many of our listeners are, are going to be a bit stressed because we haven't got control. The problem is we can't choose the external circumstances. We can't decide when we can get out of this lockup. But we've got to remember what we can control. We can control how we respond to them. We can tr- control um, well, I mean, simple things like our social distancing and not taking unnecessary journeys. But let's learn to control our reactions. And we're living in the best country in the world. And even though we're having all this challenge at the moment, let's remember it really is the best time in history. I wouldn't have liked to live 100 years ago or 50 years ago. We're going to get through this. So there's good news happening all the time. There are opportunities. So let's think like those people who are thinking positively, setting the foundation to cross that survival line rather than the pessimists who are thinking differently because how you're thinking is going to affect what's happening in your world. Your inside world reflects on your outside world. Your thoughts lead to your feelings. Your feelings lead to your actions. Your actions lead to results. So let's think positively. Let's take positive action. And guys, let's look forward to a much better year in the second half of this year. Sounds like a plan. Thank you, Michael. That's amazing. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... All about the different ways that buyers have to be aware that agents are behaving in the age of no transparency. So we have a situation now where if agents are properly licensing laws, they, well, certainly in New South Wales, they can only be in the property one agent, one buyer at a time. Now, we do know that this is not strictly being adhered to, uh, but in the situations where it is being adhered to, where you are one-on-one with the agent, um, you can't even look through the property with your partner, but you're certainly not seeing whether there are other buyers at that open house and whether they are interested or not. So you've got to think about it. When the market was back to normal or back in the days when the market was normal, you go to an open house and you could tell whether it was busy, whether it was popular or not. Now you can't. It's all behind closed doors. Uh, same with auctions. Even if you do go to auction and you bid online and it's or it's a streamed auction, you, you're trusting in a way that those other people that are bidding really are there or that the people are there, that they are interested Well, or you're trusting that they're not. I mean, at the end of the day, we as human beings, we do like social proof. We look to what other people are doing to, for us, um, give us confidence that we're doing the right thing. And certainly there's, you know, there's plenty of this in property. If you see that other people are interested, you're going to have more FOMO or more fear of missing out. It's also going to give you confidence to bid at auction. And I've seen this play out many, many times. So we're in a situation where that doesn't exist. So what does that mean? Well, that means that agents will try to manufacture the same sense of that happening. So if you're at an open house and you see there's other buyers there and you start getting freaked out that you're going to miss out and you have to make an offer, well, the agent doesn't have to work too much to create that situation, but they're going to have to create that situation in your mind so that you do make an offer. And they do certain things. A lot of them will use dialogue and they will use ways in which they try to create the sense that there's other interests. And there's a big difference whether there is real interest and whether there isn't in the actual tone of the agent's voice. So just to give you a couple of clues, a couple of tips, you know, when an agent says something like, or another buyer is shaping up to come in with an offer of X, well, 
the shaping up, preparing to, all those sort of nebulous words are a clue to you that there isn't really another buyer there right at that at that point. Um, another one is, um, you know, I've, I've got an offer on the table, it's at the right level, but the, the terms aren't attractive to the vendor. So the terms usually meaning settlement period. Once again, no serious buyer, no serious vendor is going to let a serious offer go to the wayside purely because they want six week settlement and somebody else wants eight or 12. So these are things that are quite vague and they're deliberately vague, but they are an absolute clue to a buyer that the agent is trying to create that sense of FOMO or trying to um, manufacture that idea of social proof without really having it. Now on the flip side of that, when they actually say to you, this property will exchange contracts today or will sell today, that's different because they're actually saying they're giving a deadline and they're saying that something definitely will happen. So what I'm saying here is as buyers, be on the lookout for very clear, direct communication from agents. Usually you can rely on that, but something that's a bit fuzzier, a bit less direct and less clear, uh, I would be saying that's the agent just trying to put pressure on you rather than actually properly having another buyer that is going to compete with you. Please join us for our next episode when we interview Bart Mead. He's the head of valuation at JLL and we're talking all about valuations. Now, it might sound like a dry topic, but it isn't. It's actually very interesting because all of us, basically, when we borrow money from the banks, are in some ways uh, relying on that valuation coming in at the right price. All of us, if we are borrowing money to buy a property, need to understand really how important the valuation is, why it's done, and what impact it can have on us and the risks that we're taking. But in addition, we do discuss around whether buyers should get their own valuations done separate to the bank valuation prior to buying a property. And why would we do this? So if you want to understand about confidence, risk, and the dreaded bank valuation, then you need to tune into a very informative interview. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.